It's the Covenant Courses Podcast. My name's Weston Brown. Thanks for joining us today. On today's episode, Taylor and I are going to be wrapping up our three-part look at biblical interpretation, which is what we've been delving into over the last couple of weeks. And specifically today, we're going to consider a few more interpretive lenses for the Old Testament and also look at just some tips for interpreting the New Testament as well. Um, as always, you can check out our course syllabus in the show notes of this episode. And uh, with that in mind, let's uh, go ahead and jump into this week's conversation. We've been talking for a couple weeks now about the meta narrative of Scripture. Yeah. And we wrapped that up last time, and we started looking at interpretive lenses for the Old Testament, and we'll finish that up today, get into some interpretive lenses for the New Testament. And just to recap, I mean, Taylor, the big thing that we've talked about from day one has been context. That's right. And and really everything that we're kind of unpacking in this is sort of a, a subheading under the, the main prominent heading of context. Yeah. If if we don't have context, we're just there's just no way that we're going to arrive at an accurate interpretation. Um and so that's what we've been hitting on heavy for a few weeks. Um this is kind of wrapping up a few episodes on just interpretation of the scripture today and to recap a little bit for you from last time in addition to the meta-narrative of Scripture, or the overarching storyline of the Bible, um, we looked last time at three contextual lenses for interpreting the Old Testament, and and these are things that you would consider with the New Testament as well, but we're going to we're gonna break them up a little bit and look at some more specific ones to the New Testament in a moment. But last time we looked at context again, and you'll hear us talk about it even more today. Context, context, context. We looked at covenant last time as well, and uh, just considered the Old Testament covenants and uh, the consideration of when you're reading a passage of Scripture and trying to interpret it, asking questions about the covenantal age in which the passage of Scripture um, kind of resides is really important. And then third, we uh, considered the canon itself, meaning what does the Bible say about itself? And in particular, what does the New Testament say about the Old Testament? And we looked at some ways that um, the teaching of Jesus and the writing of Paul and others give context for Old Testament passages. Um, which falls into sort of a, a hermeneutical principle of Scripture interprets Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something you'll hear talked about, which basically means that if, if we ever come across a text that is murky or a text that we don't understand clearly um, or doesn't seem to make sense, then one of the first things we want to do is find other passages of Scripture that seemingly talk about the same thing and interpret an unclear passage in light of passages that are clear. Yeah. Um, so, so that's kind of what we're getting at there. And, and as we said last time, the New Testament references the Old Testament constantly and provides, um, I, I think, a framing for how to use certain things in the Old Testament. So our next, our next uh, in this list of Old Testament interpretive lenses is the character of God. Um, and, and what we're getting at here is if you're wanting to interpret a passage in a way that um, goes against 
the character of God as presented in the whole of Scripture, then it's quite possible that you're interpreting it incorrectly. Does it, is that clear, Taylor? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. So when we run into these, and most often this happens with like our problem passages, some of these things that, right. that make us feel icky or come across the wrong way or at, at a cursory reading, we look at it and go, that just can't be right. Yeah. Whenever we read some of these things, now it, it may very well be possible that the way that we're reading it or interpreting it just isn't right. Mm. But one of the things we want to look at is the way that God is described the way that he describes himself and the way that scripture, the authors of scripture, describe the characteristics of God and apply that lens onto a text instead of maybe thinking the way that we believe things should go mm. involving a text or, or like our ethics or morals, applying that to a text before applying what the Bible says about God to it. Right, so the Bible uh, routinely says that God is good. Right. Right? Um, and when we hear that, we immediately are inclined to receive that based on our personal definition of goodness. Right. But the question we want to ask is, what does the Bible mean when it says that God is good? What is, what is the Bible's definition of goodness? Yeah. Because we hear something like that, and then we read in the Old Testament these times where God uh, brings about judgment on people, um, or when God calls the people of Israel to destroy cities, Yeah. and suddenly that gets really confusing for us. Yeah. How can God be good, and yet all of these other things are true? Um, so, so hopefully that gives you an, an understanding of kind of what we're talking about here. It's, it's like we can't, um, we can't simply hear words like that and, and assume that we know what that means. We have to do the work of, of asking questions about, well, what, what did the writer mean when he said this? What does the Bible mean when it says this of God? Yeah. Um, you know, obviously the Bible continually says that God is slow to anger, and yet we do see the wrath of God in Scripture. Um, we see that God is, what, abounding in steadfast love, that mm -hmm. God is love, that, you know, all of these things. But God is also perfectly just, right? We can't, uh, we can't cherry-pick the attributes of God that we like and ignore jettison the ones we don't like mm -hmm. um, or call shenanigans or hypocrisy when we have majored on one attribute of God and ignored another attribute of God. Yeah, um, and so. I think I think an important part of this is realizing that we still have our preconceived notions. We still have our lens that's really really difficult to to remove mm -hmm. from the equation. And so I can be fully aware of what Scripture says about God, and then look at a passage in light of that, and still it, it's it's not like this removes all doubt or removes any discomfort when reading something. I mean, you mentioned the like the wars mm -hmm. in Joshua, the yeah. book of Joshua, it doesn't just make that go away. It's not like you can use this and just go, oh, okay, that makes that makes perfect sense, of course. Right. Because we're still not God. <laughs> and so yeah. when looking at some of this stuff, you can, you can try, and you, we should try, we should do the work to try as hard as we can to see this through the lens that the Bible presents, but it doesn't mean it's, it's just going to be easy on the first go. Yeah. One of the things that I think is really important for us to remember... Um, 
And there are a lot of factors that are working against this in religious culture. But God is not, God is not a human being. Right. Um, pr- uh, human pronouns are used for God in the pages of Scripture, I think primarily because it's, it's about all we can really understand. Sure. But God is not a man, and we cannot ascribe purely human emotions and feelings and actions to God. That's right. Um, and that is very hard for us to remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I was looking, I've got some photos here of just artwork hmm. that depicts God. And I mean, and if you think about Michelangelo, the Sistine Chapel, you know, the finger of God painting. Right. I mean, God is, God is personified in art historically as um, one, a, a white male. Yeah, just an old white guy. An old white guy um, with a long flowing beard. But really, like, art is taking a cue from, or at least uh, like Renaissance era art is taking a cue from even further back um, with depictions of Zeus, yeah. where what does Zeus look like? Yeah. Well, he's a white guy with a long hair and a long flowing beard. And whether we realize it or not, those, and, and we see these same sort of depictions culturally today as well in, you know, TV, media, movies, on and on, it's, it's impossible for us to not imbibe those things in some way, mm-hmm. where we come to see God as being a guy in the sky, you know, a guy on a cloud, which, which is sort of the historic depiction of Zeus, mm-hmm. you know, the mythological God. Um, and, and so when we read Scripture and we see, like, uh, we see both masculine and feminine pronouns used, I believe, in Scripture. I mean, God, it's, it sometimes is, uh, he's most often described in masculine terms, but he is sometimes described um, in, in somewhat feminine terms as well because of his care and concern and love for Israel specifically. Um, and creation, but uh, but God is not a human being. That's right. And um, it can be difficult to get that stuff out of our head. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's honestly one of the biggest problems that I still have, too. Uh, and, and part of that may come from the way that the Bible does use these, these pronouns or some of this imagery, some mm-hmm. of this human-like imagery. You get the prophets oftentimes see like the throne of God, and they'll, they'll mm-hmm. describe something like feet or something mm-hmm. like legs. And then you got God showing Moses, right, like his back mm-hmm. in uh, yeah. the book of Exodus. Yeah. So you, you have these things. That I think one of, the, one of the ways it was best explained to me was by a professor who was explaining this is kind of a, the word he uses is accommodation. Mm-hmm. And scripture uses this of God in several areas, but the the anthropomorphizing of God, this like giving him human attributes or human right. qualities is is an accommodation that allows us, and it doesn't allow us to understand God mm. in like a full sense, yes. that I would really like get to know you or the way that I get to know my wife. Because fully. God is infinite. Right. We are finite. But it, it gives us like a window yeah. into better understanding something that is infinite. Mm. Yeah. Well, and it, and we do this with depictions of Jesus. We we want to depict Jesus in the same way we see ourselves. You know, which is why here in the West forever Jesus has been depicted 
as being a very fair-skinned, blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy. Yeah. Right? Like, whoever the majority is, they they want to... And, and he's historically, Ewan, he's been depicted in that way. He's right? Ewan McGregor. Yeah, he is Ewan McGregor. He's Obi-Wan. There you go. Um, Psalm 90 says that God is eternal and everlasting. Um, so he is infinite, mm-hmm. which... Even if we stop there, I don't understand that. Yeah, I, I mean, I understand what it is. Right. I understand. I can define it, but I don't understand it. Like, I don't have an experience of that. We take for granted just how complex the concept of infinity yeah. is. Yeah. So God is eternal and everlasting. He is sovereign, the psalmist says, over life and death as the mighty creator. So he reigns with complete power mm-hmm. over these metaphysical concepts of life and death in in not like in a in a literal existential way yeah. right like he is the author of life and rules over it um which which by the way and this is a rabbit trail but the psalmist says he's sovereign over life and death as the mighty creator and sometimes um, the return of Jesus is depicted as like, or, or no, I'm sorry, not the return, the death of Jesus and resurrection of Jesus is depicted as this moment where God wins the keys of death back. I don't know if you've heard that language before, but, but sometimes the death and resurrection of Christ is described as this moment of victory where um, Jesus like wins back something from the devil. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, I that, have. that's the way that some people think about that. I, I don't think that's a biblical um, perspective. And I think the psalmist even here is making the case that um, that that like God is so powerful, that we are not we are not living in a situation right now where the devil has somehow managed to get the upper hand on God, mm-hmm. right? That that God is still fully in control, yeah. Even in this moment, in the brokenness of our world, yeah. Um, I think we get that maybe from, um, oh goodness, where is it? In Revelation, when Jesus is seen, the slain lamb is seen as holding the keys, the keys. to death and Hades. <laughs> yes. Yes. But but I think what we're missing there, and this is gonna be no surprise to anyone who's been listening, is context when those like the keys to death or the keys to Hades, the keys to a palace, the keys to a temple, this was a very this was a very common symbol in the ancient Near East world. Sure. And and so even if they're not literal keys, even if it's even but, if it's but who's metaphor, holding them? Yeah, it's 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 a symbol for control, right? It's a symbol for control. It's it's it's, it's yeah. reflective of his sovereignty, and the the problem there in in this view that somehow Jesus through his resurrection right. won those is this idea that there was ever a time when he didn't hold them. Yeah, and so I think people are extrapolating maybe backwards from okay, Jesus is standing here with the keys. We didn't see mention of this before, so he must have just like gone down and got them. Like he, he pried yes, them out yes. of Satan's hands, figuratively. Yeah, which is what we've talked about before. Is is in these areas of scripture where we don't know what happened, or we don't get the whole story, um, such as the 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 time period where Jesus is in the tomb. Right. Right. This is a like classic area where 
all kinds of honestly mythology has been born and birthed sure. around this. Sure. Um, yeah, it's it's an area that the scripture just doesn't speak to, and so we have to be very careful to parse out what does the Bible actually say versus, hey, what are some things that have been put into me through my time in the church that maybe don't actually bear out when I read the scripture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I say all that to say, and that's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I say all that to say our view of God, like our mental picture of God is incredibly important. Um, how how we see him sort of in our mind's eye is incredibly important. And I would encourage everybody to, uh, and this may be something where you want to sit down and just journal a little bit, but consider, I mean, like describe your mental picture of God. What what does he look like? What is he like? Um, and then And then ask the hard questions of, like, why is that the way that I see God? Like, is is my view of God biblical, or is my view of God something that uh, was put into me by things adults would say? Mm-hmm. Um, or is my view of God something that was put into me by popular media? Which is, I mean, I, like our view of the devil sure. is that way. I mean, we think of the devil immediately as a red guy with the pitchfork and the horns and the tail. And good, good grief! Like that is that is not a biblical picture yeah. of Satan, thanks, right? Thanks, Dante. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really does. A lot of that goes back to Dante's Inferno, yeah. um, but it has been expanded and you know, man, added I, onto over the years. I I second what you just said, though. I think that's a great exercise for anybody is to sit down and and really be honest with yourself, even if this, you know, certainly don't have to go show this to anybody, but to be honest with yourself for a minute and go, what do I think God is like? Right. Like at, at, at my core, if I can if I can set aside any like any front that I'm trying to put up to people, what do I honestly think God is like? And then examine these passages of scripture where God is described, or especially where he's describing himself. Mm-hmm. And kind of compare those and be willing to do the really hard thing of saying, Okay, what do I need to let go of from what I th- what I think, what right. I've right. maybe even grown up with? And instead, what what do I need to cling to that I'm seeing now to be true? Yeah. If we believe that the Bible is true, we should be willing to let go of our own notions, our preconceived notions or the things that we've been formed by and have grown up with, and say, no, I'm actually going to live out of this truth instead. Yeah. It's popular today to talk about and hear about deconstruction in Christian circles, right? Sure. Um, and sometimes, sometimes you'll hear people say that they're deconstructing their faith, and what they really mean is they're walking away from faith. Right. Right. They're walking away from the church. Something maybe something uh, traumatic has happened to them in the church, or it could be something where they just go, "Hey, I don't believe this, and I never have, and I'm being honest about that now." Um, and certainly, we wouldn't encourage anybody towards that. But but I do think a certain amount of deconstruction for the purpose of reconstruction is is incredibly not only helpful but it, it's something that um, aids in our maturity mm-hmm. like like being able to examine these things in our lives and ask real questions about them ask hard questions about them where did these things come from why do I believe these things do I actually believe these things and you know be willing to uh, be honest with yourself possibly a mentor or a friend or a counselor as well. And and do the work of really examining it and and reconstruction uh, re, reconstructing it, 
Um, one of the things I've talked a little bit about is I've, I mean, my view of God historically has been biased toward God being angry. Yeah. Um, I think that's something that was put into me as a kid in, in, um, and, and I don't know that that's something that I was like explicitly told, but I think it's something that I took in through various means. Hmm. And, um, I've talked a little bit about just the church environment that I grew up in. And, and, and so my, even though I don't believe that that is true, like even though I be, like uh, intellectually believe uh, the things that the Bible says of God, such as he's slow to anger, like his, his set point is not anger, right? Um, and that he's abounding in steadfast love, which is this, this statement that gets repeated, partic- particularly in the Old Testament. Even though I believe those things intellectually, I have I have these things inside of me that fight against that, that war against that, that um, that to some extent, my like I have a tendency to want to see God as Zeus, as as the guy on the cloud holding a lightning bolt, just waiting waiting to hit me with it, you know, mm-hmm. if I screw up. Um, and that's not the picture that Scripture paints. And so even even as um, an adult who has been a believer for a long time, has been in Christian ministry for a long time, like I still have unbiblical things within me that I'm I'm working to identify and, ex- and exorcise from my life and, yeah. and replace with something more good and true. Mm-hmm. That's just hard work. Yeah. I mean, what we're trying to do here is be more like Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're trying to... We're trying to be less like us and be more like Jesus, who didn't have those incorrect yeah. views of God. He had a perfect view yeah. of God the Father and was able to live out of that truth. And we're trying to come with our baggage and our insecurities and, and be more like Jesus. Yeah, 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 yeah. Man, that was a nice rabbit trail. I love it. <laughs> um, so we've been we. What got us into that is we've been looking at Psalm ninety. Yeah. Um, and Recap. Psalm Psalm ninety is just a great psalm for you to go check out. And and I would read the whole thing. It's seventeen uh, verses long, but I, I'm gonna let you go do that. But but really, verses two, verse four, we said God is eternal and everlasting. Verse two, three, really through verse six, God is sovereign over life and death as mm-hmm. the mighty Creator. Um, verses seven and eight, and also verse eleven say that God is a God of holy wrath. Uh, 7 and 8 say, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence, which tells us that, that and, and this is certainly not the only place, I mean, throughout the Scripture we learn God hates sin. Mm-hmm. And, and even here in these verses, God's anger is not... Uh, groundless, like it is. It is anger. It is wrath towards our shortcomings. Like it is towards our sin and sin in general. Um, so we we get that truth over and over. God is a God of holy wrath, but then also, and we see this verses thir- thirteen through fourteen. He is also a God of mercy, pity, and steadfast love. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. This one, this one to me is hard. These two things are hard to hold in contention if my view of God's wrath and love, if the object of that is me. Mm. But they're, they're two different things, and I love that you pointed that out. He is a God of holy wrath, 
And the verse says, you've set our iniquities before you, mm-hmm. our secret sins in the light of your presence. What God is, what God is mad at is sin. Yeah. It's, not, it's not me. Mm. He's mad at the sin that is in me. Mm. He has love and mercy and pity for me. Yeah. And so I, I think that's, that's probably going back to our false views of God. That's probably been one that's hard for me is to try and, try and not see God as being angry specifically at me mm-hmm. when really it's this stuff in me that I need to just be rid of. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I mean, think about your own children. And, and the thing, I mean, as a parent, when you're parenting your kids, if you're, if you're parenting responsibly, you, you naturally have ways in which you want to see your children grow and develop and mature, right? And, and I think the same thing is true with our God. Like, yeah. he, he is continually presented as this loving Father, and which is hard, especially for those of us who have not had loving earthly fathers. It's hard for us to understand that or really fully grasp that but but he is a father who desires your good and the things within you that work against your good he's he has wrath towards right like yeah. he naturally wants you know like if you have a child who's addicted to drugs and it's just wreaking havoc on their life and their body you still love your child but you're you're so angry at this thing that has derailed their life and the power and control that it holds over them. Yeah. And um, I think the same thing is true with our God. Um, and this is just one place. Psalm 90 is just one place out of many where God's character is described for us. Um, and the last part of that, verses 16 and 17, is it tells us that God is gloriously powerful and beautiful. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to, your, to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So um, Psalm 90, great starting place for you to just kind of understand the character of God mm-hmm. and um, build a perhaps more biblical view of God in your life. And then finally, the last interpretive lens of the Old Testament is maybe one that you might not expect, but it is the lens of Christ. Um, What we believe about the Old Testament is that it is ultimately pointing ahead to Christ. And, And so how does the text that you're reading point forward to Christ? And sometimes that's very obvious. Sometimes it is less obvious. Um... Uh, how is a text fulfilled by Christ? Because Jesus does fulfill um, a number of Old Testament prophecies. Um, Luke 24, 25, and 27, this is the passage where Jesus, it's after the resurrection, um, where Jesus meets these guys on the road to Emmaus and appears to them. And at first they don't know who he is, and then it's revealed to them later. But Luke 24, verses 25 through 27 Um, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So, Taylor, this is the Gospel of Luke. It is the New Testament. So when Luke talks about all the scriptures, what's he talking about? Right, he's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. Yeah, everything from Moses through the prophets. Yeah, the, the common the common kind of title for the Hebrew Bible is the, the Law and the Prophets, or Moses and the Prophets. Yeah, and if you remember uh, in the episode where we sort of unpacked the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, we mm-hmm. talked about the Torah, 
which would be the books of Moses. That's right. We talked about uh, the prophets. We talked about the writings. Um, so what Jesus is telling us here, because this is one of the places that we base this idea on, is that all of the scriptures speak about him. Mm-hmm. And that as we're reading and interpreting the Old Testament, we are filtering that through the lens of Christ. Um, so let me ask a question yeah. as, as we jump into this lens. Does this mean I should be looking at every single word of every verse in the Old Testament as applying to Christ? Or should I be looking at these narratives, themes, authors, prophecies as being fulfilled? Like, mm-hmm. does... I guess, where would you draw the line there? Yeah, well, I, do, I don't know that it's, it's certainly not every word, right? Um, but it is kind of all across the map. So if we're talking about the books of Moses, let's start there because that's the first. Sure. If we're talking about the books of Moses, even when we walked through the meta narrative of Scripture, what we immediately saw was that there are story, true stories in the books of Moses that um, contain Christ figures, mm-hmm. right? We talked about Joseph. We talked about Moses. Both of these guys function in a redeemer role. Um, um, Moses is sent by God. Jesus says he is sent by God. I mean, there are just all of these connections there. Um, and, and so on on that level, with, with things like that, we are speaking not in an allegorical sense, but we are speaking in more of a thematic sense. Yeah. When we get into the prophets, there are specific prophecies concerning Christ, concerning the coming Messiah, that we then see fleshed out, lived out in the life of Christ. Yeah. Um, so we would call those messianic prophecies. So so we have instances where the, the way that a text points forward to Christ is thematic in nature. We have other texts where it is literal in nature. Um, this week we are, um, on Sunday, we're going to be talking about um, John 2, where Jesus cleanses the temple. Um, which is something, it's, an, it's interesting in John 2 because it happens very early in the story in John 2. Right. Um, whereas in the other three Gospels, it's something that happens at literally the very end of Jesus' story during Holy Week. And one of the things that the disciples remember is um, a quote from the Psalms, like when they see Jesus cleansing the temple and driving out people from the temple. They remember this this verse from the Psalms that says, zeal for your house will consume him. Um, and so even in that moment, the, um, the disciples take a verse that I think I think seemingly would refer to David. Mm-hmm. David saying, God's zeal for your house consumes me. And the disciples recognize that as something that is actually talking about Jesus. Um, or in uh, Luke as well, I think it's Luke 4, where Jesus stands up in the synagogue and reads from the mm-hmm. scroll of Isaiah. Yeah. And he reads Isaiah chapter 61, which is seemingly a passage where Isaiah is talking about himself, where Isaiah says, you have sent me to proclaim good news to the poor, and you've sent me to proclaim reco- recovery of sight to the blind, and 
you've sent me to proclaim that the prisons are open to captives. And Jesus stands up and reads this and then says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Yeah. Meaning, like, you're looking at the fulfillment of these words. Right. Um, and so those are passages of Scripture that are um, understood in the light of Christ. Um, and they are passages where there is a sense in which Isaiah 61 absolutely refers to Isaiah. It's, it is Isaiah talking He's about himself. Yeah. And yet, and this is, this is the, this supernatural inspiration of the scripture, it at the same time is a passage about Jesus. through the Old Testament looking to allegorize every statement into Jesus or right. read Jesus into every verse. Yeah. But we're looking to naturally watch as the story unfolds and then especially see, I mean, you mentioned two places, especially see where the New Testament recognizes fulfillment of these things. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and, 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 you know, people can get carried away with with trying trying to find Jesus in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. um, and and as far as we know, as far as the Bible makes plain, um, the Son or Jesus Christ does not explicitly appear in the pages of the Old Testament. Right? Yeah. There are places where there are somewhat mysterious figures that appear that people love to. Um, identify as Jesus or attribute to Jesus. Um, when I was uh, a literature student in undergrad, um, I remember being in a class, and I forget what the class was even, but we were reading from the King James Bible, because often in, in high school and college, at least back in the day, the King James Bible would be approached just as an incredible work of literature. Right. And, um, and, and I remember I had a, had a Jewish literature teacher, actually, and I remember being in a class where we were talking about some of these things, and um, <laughs> there, are times when the, there are times when the Scripture speaks of the Son, right? The, the second person of the Trinity, and there are times when the Scripture speaks of Jesus, right? And because we are good, like Western American evangelicals, we, we go, well, those are the same thing. The Son yeah. is Jesus. Jesus is the Son. Right. But the reality is, is that the Son predates Jesus Christ. Like, Jesus Christ is the Son in, incarnated. He is the Son in human form. Like, so there is no point in the Old Testament, um, using that schema, where, where Jesus exists. The Son exists because the sun has always existed, and the mm-hmm. sun is the agent of creation, John says. Um, but there's no point where we see Jesus pop up, even though the scripture is pointing ahead to Jesus. It is pointing ahead to this coming Messiah, this coming Christ. Um, and so uh, a, a common one is we see this mysterious figure called the angel of the Lord, Yeah. right? Um, we see this figure in Genesis called uh, Melchizedek, um, who is this high priest who brings bread and wine to Abraham, mm-hmm. um, and then seeming and then kind of vanishes, and so um, so yeah. But even uh, that's another point. Melchizedek, the writer of Hebrews, says that 
Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Right. Like he is that this Melchizedek figure may not be Christ himself, uh, may not be the son, but he is sort of a harbinger of the son. Yeah, he is type. Yeah. So um, anyway, is that super nerdy and boring? I mean, I, I could go on for hours with it, <laughs> but maybe we move on. Yeah, so again, we just want to um, ask, how does this text point forward to Christ? How is this text fulfilled ultimately by Jesus? And the beauty of it is, is we have the benefit of hindsight. Like, we're able to look at the New Testament and then look back to the Old Testament and see how these things came to fruition. Um, okay, so that's that. those are just a few interpretive lenses for the Old Testament. Obviously, we could do a whole series on biblical hermeneutics, um, Maybe do, we a whole, should. do a whole series on the Old Testament as it relates to this. But let's just talk some about the New Testament as well. And remember, there are over. there's going to be overlap with these interpretive lenses. And so the things that we've talked about with the Old Testament, they don't only apply to the Old Testament. They also right. apply to the New Testament. And the same thing will be true here. Um, but just by way of getting a bit more specific, let's talk about the New Testament. And the first one, Taylor, is that we would remember the basic genre um, mm-hmm. of the literature that we're reading at the time. We've talked about this already, but um, in the New Testament specifically, we see a few different genres of literature. Um, you want to talk us through uh, some of those New Testament genres that that pop yeah. up? Yeah, so they're broken up pretty evenly. Uh, you've got, or, or pretty well-defined, I guess, in most cases, you've got biography or gospel accounts, which are your first four books. There's really only one narrative or historical narrative book, which is going to be the book of Acts Mm. that follows the Gospels. And then you've got a bunch of letters or the epistolary genre. Um, And that's going to be all of the letters from Paul, um, as well as some pastoral letters from Paul and then letters written by John or Peter, James, Jude. Um, And then this anonymous letter of Hebrews which I might argue is an epistolary narrative. Okay, okay. Um, I don't know. I'm big into the book of Hebrews right now. So I I would place that off on its own little island, but it's a letter. uh, Aside, do you have a take on who the author of Hebrews is? Oh, I love him being anonymous. Oh, you love like him being just anonymous, personally? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't see Paul. I, I I know that that's maybe a common one today is to attribute it to Paul. Maybe less common today, but mm-hmm. I don't I don't see that as being Paul. I like him being anonymous. That fits mm-hmm. that fits for me. Yeah, yeah. Do you? No, I really don't. I I mean, I think there are some things in Hebrews that sound like Paul. Yeah. But then there are other things that definitely don't sound like Paul. Yeah. You know, it makes just... me think he had access to some of Paul's writings, but wasn't necessarily Paul himself. Yeah. But anyway, so we've got we've got biography or gospel. We've got one history book. There are lots of letters. And then there's the one apocalyptic or prophetic book, really both prophetic and apocalyptic, uh, in Revelation. Yeah. And within, I mean, those would be the primary genres that right. we find. And then within individual books, we find sub, sub-genres. Yeah, like know? parable is a, a huge one that we can't yeah. understate. Yeah, uh, within the within the uh, gospels. Yeah, particularly the synoptic gospels, Jesus teaches in parable form, and um, a parable is uh, it's a very kind of specific thing. That is, uh, I mean, Jesus is easily the best known parabolist in human history, 
and it is a primary method of teaching for him mm-hmm. in which he uh, it's sort of sort of an allegorical form of teaching um, but but not entirely I mean an allegory is typically a, a situation where all of the characters in a story represent other things right um, and that isn't always true in parable but there are elements of that sometimes um, and uh, it's normally very short form, um, and it's a situation where the story itself represents a larger truth or teaches a larger truth. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, one of Jesus's most famous parables is the parable of the prodigal son. And so, if you think about that story, which is just a, I mean, it's a great story in and of itself, but we're not meant to receive it simply as a story and go, oh, that's a good story. Um, we're meant to receive it as this larger thing that um, that gives us, uh, yeah, that teaches a higher truth or a higher point. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jesus isn't ambiguous about this either. Like he's very clear about this. And he, as you will, if you read through the Gospels, if you read, read through Matthew, Jesus will say things like the kingdom of heaven is like mm-hmm. X Y Z. And then he'll tear, tell a parable. You know, the kingdom of heaven is like somebody who finds a treasure buried in a field, and they go sell everything they have to buy the field and get the treasure. You mm-hmm. know, so that's an incredibly short one. Yeah. Um, but Jesus tells his listeners, and ultimately the gospel writers tell their readers, that what he's doing there is he's trying to describe for us what the kingdom of God is like. Yeah, and the gospel writers, as well as Jesus, oftentimes are interested in us understanding the parables. And so when we when we think about what a parable might mean, you mentioned that there's generally a truth to the parable, which which should stop us from allegorizing to the extent that, well, this can mean a whole bunch of different things depending on how we look at this character and how we look at this outcome. Mm-hmm. Just look at the way that Jesus spoke the parable. Mm-hmm. Look at the way that the uh, the authors or Jesus will explain the parable, a lot of times they'll just go ahead and do that for you. They That's do right. the hard work of yeah. figuring out what it means and use common sense when looking at these. A lot of them aren't super like confusing. Mm. A lot of them are fairly straightforward and will include one main truth. Uh, and, and those are the things that we should look for. I think looking for the main truth out of a parable and looking for what the author or what Jesus has to say about it is probably the biggest two things to consider. Yeah, a a parable that comes to mind there as you talk about that is uh, Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, Yeah, or what's sometimes called the parable of the soils. Mm -hmm. And this is just another reason why you should read larger chunks of Scripture at a time, is if you read the parable of the sower itself, which is Matthew 13, 1 through 9, and then stop, you've gotten the parable, but if you read on to the end of the chapter, Jesus explains the parable. That's right. Um, But if you don't keep reading um, and read down a couple more paragraphs, you, you don't get to this point. So... If you read Matthew 13, 1 through 9, and then stop, and then try to interpret it on your own, you know, who knows what you're going to come away with. Whereas if you will just read a larger chunk of Scripture, Jesus does the work and explains it for us. Mm -hmm. Um, So we don't have to guess. Like, we don't have to um, try to figure out what certain things mean. Jesus does that for us. So um, just another push for you to read larger chunks. Uh, yeah, so we see parable, we see poetry, 
um, in the Gospels specifically. Uh, I mean, uh, probably the most famous is the Magnificat, which is Mary's song of praise to God after learning uh, of what is to come with Christ. Um, uh, yeah, we see, um, you know, Paul's letters. They include some is, poetry. Yeah, um, but but it's also just correspondence, you yeah. know, which again is not something we find in the Old Testament. Um, the Old Testament is primarily history, prophecy, and poetry. Mm-hmm. Like those are those are the three big genres we find in the Old Testament. And then we certainly find subgenre of apocalyptic literature. Um, we certainly find um, you know, there's a letter here and there. There, yeah, a little bit. Um, we find um, some some element of biography with certain people. Um, but anyway, yeah. So remember the genre as you're working through all of this, and um, and 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 something to consider as well is when you're reading a passage is um, based on the genre. Is the passage meant to be prescriptive or descriptive? Yeah, um, and I say based on the genre because depending on the kind of genre you're reading, that's going to give you some clues as to whether or not the writer is simply describing something for us, or is the writer telling us to do something? Is it descriptive or is it prescriptive? That's right. Um, so if we're reading the book of Acts, for example, which is a book of history, a narrative history, linear history, Luke, the author of Acts, is primarily being descriptive. He's simply telling us what happened. Um, And people love to receive that as being prescriptive, right? They love to take Acts 2 and look at the early church uh, gathering in homes, sharing meals, devoting themselves to prayers and the apostles' teaching, all wonderful things. But there are people who want to receive that and say, this is the model for how we are supposed to do church. Right. And that's not the case Luke's making, because Luke is simply being descriptive. He's saying the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, and here's what happened mm-hmm. after that, right? And certainly there are things we can glean from that, but when we take it as some kind of prescriptive command or directive from Luke, yeah. we're not reading it correctly. Right. If you want to know how the early church was supposed to work, you may look at the letters of Paul. Yes. Who wrote two churches, telling them a lot of times what they should or shouldn't be doing. That's in, right. In response to situations, again, mm-hmm. pointing us back to context. Yes, that's very true. And and that gets, that gets challenging, Taylor. I mean, because you read Paul's letters, and clearly Paul is being prescriptive to the people he's writing to. Right. The question we have to face a lot of times is, are we included in that as well? What do we do with that? Yeah, and yeah. and that gets real controversial. Paul sure. famously says, "I don't permit a woman to teach." Oh boy, right? Yeah. So is he only speaking to uh, Timothy? Is yeah, is he only speaking to the? Is it the church in Ephesus? I believe. Yeah. Um, or is this something that Paul? Is this a case that Paul's making for all Christians in all contexts at all times? Right. right? Like this is. This is where it gets hard, honestly, mm-hmm. and where brothers and sisters in Christ simply arrive at different places. Um, and so it's, uh, and, and all arrive at different places claiming to have used the best interpretive means possible. Yeah. You know, so um, this is not always easy, but, um, but certainly we can say in those instances that Paul was being prescriptive to his re- readers, to the mm-hmm. people that he was writing to. Um, and the genre gives us some clues for that. 
Um, and then in the Gospels, uh, keep your eyes on Jesus. And I mean, Jesus is the central figure of the New Testament and of the whole Bible in many ways. But in particular, in the Gospel accounts, who is Jesus? Like, we are meant to use these things to learn Christ, to emulate the way of Christ, to apply the way of Christ to our lives. And so that has to be a big consideration as we're reading through the gospel accounts. Uh, Luke 4, 1 through 4 says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Um, so that's obviously Jesus going out into the wilderness to be tempted. Um, I would encourage you guys to take a passage like that, Luke 4, 1 through 4, and ask, what do I learn about Jesus here? Like, who is Jesus in this moment? How is Jesus responding? What do we see? Um, Jesus is somebody who is following the Spirit of God. He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He experiences temptation. Um, later, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus has been tempted in every way that we've been tempted. Yeah. So think about all the ways that you're tempted, and Jesus has been tempted in those same ways as well. Um, he ate nothing during those days, um, which obviously there's something supernatural going on here for Christ as well. Um, he's quoting the Old Testament in this moment as well. In verse 4, Jesus answered the devil, Man shall not live by bread alone. Mm -hmm. um, so so it, it, that's just an example. Just pull out a, a passage like that. Be sure to read a larger chunk of text, but be, be asking questions about who is Jesus in these moments. What, it, what did Jesus do? What did he teach? Who is he? Who do people see him as? And also, what does it mean to be his disciple? How does he define those things? Um. Next, in the epistles, and this is still kind of under this heading of genre, in the epistles, remember the indicative imperative pattern, um, which relates in some ways to the question of is this descriptive or prescriptive. Um, but so some questions to ask here is what, what did this mean to the original hearers? Um, so we don't want to start with, um, in a letter that Paul was writing to Colossae, we don't want to start by going, what does this mean to me in my modern context? Right. We want to consider what this would have meant to the people who were receiving it. And um, the commands and exhortations of the gospel, um, so, so like the imperatives in that content and context, the imperatives are, are things where it's like, you need to do this. Um, those always arise from the exposition of God's grace in mm -hmm. the Gospels. So the indicatives. God has done this. This is a pattern we see particularly in Paul. So the imperatives, you need to do this, flow from the indicatives. The indicatives give rise to the imperatives, and that may be confusing to you, um, but, but an example would be, you have been forgiven, therefore forgive, right? So the indicative is you have been forgiven. This is what Christ has done for you. Therefore, here's what you should do. Mm -hmm. So again, we're looking to Christ in that instance. We're going, who was he? What, what did he do? What has he done for me? 
And then what we take away from that to put into practice in our lives is reflective of what he has done for us. Um, You have been made holy through Christ, um, therefore be holy in your conduct, right? Mm -hmm. Jesus has done something, now you go and do likewise. Yeah, and especially the way that Paul does this, and hopefully this may make it a little easier to read Paul's letters every now and then, because I know this was helpful for me. Paul does this through kind of forming this hypothetical conversation. So he's writing a letter, so he's only got his side of it that he's sending to someone. But as he's doing this, he's giving the indicatives and then answering with the imperatives. He'll do this in like a back and forth that he creates by himself. Yeah. And so you'll be reading Paul and you'll notice yourself going like, well, he's he's it's like he's having this circular conversation with himself. He is. Mm. And he's doing that on purpose and kind of pan out a little bit and see that and it may help to better understand some of the some of the longer uh, letters that Paul writes and some of the ways that he explains these different topics. Absolutely. Um, and 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 so sometimes this is real easy because you get it condensed in one verse or two verses. Right. Uh, Peter does this in First Peter one fourteen and sixteen. He says, "As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy." You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Mm -hmm. So the indicative is, he who called you is holy, and the imperative is, you also be holy in all your conduct. So that one's kind of easy, because you see it all right there. Um, In the letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3 are these chapters where Paul is going on and on about the riches of God's grace towards us in Christ. So literally, those three chapters are indicative. Yeah. He's describing Christ and and, and Christ's grace to us. And then chapters four through six, Paul then draws out the implications of those indicatives and then applies them to the lives of his readers and calls his readers in response to those things. Mm -hmm. Um, A similar thing is happening... In Romans, Romans 1 through 11 is more indicative in nature. Romans 12 through 16 is more imperative in nature. So, so this is this is the way um, I think good preaching happens today as well on some level. There is this um, exegesis of what of the gospel itself, this this unpacking of the depths of the truth of the gospel. And then there is the application of now, in light of those things, here's who we should be or how we should live or how we should interact with other people. Yeah. So does that seem clear? Yeah. This is just another thing we're looking at, and particularly in the epistles. Um, Next, uh, remember what Scripture is for. So um, we've remembered the genre, right? Um, Now, like... Why are we reading this in the first place? Why does this exist in the first place? What is the intention right. of Holy Scripture? Um, a verse to look at there, which is one we've talked about already in this course, but is 2 Timothy 4.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. 3.16. 3.16, I'm sorry. Uh, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Yeah, there you go. So again, Timothy's talking about the Old Testament here, right? But but he is he's speaking of anything that we would consider to be holy scripture. Right. As well. Right. So does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um 
So what he says is all scripture, anything that is considered universally and falls into those categories of canonization that we talked about in previous episodes, um, Paul's saying to Timothy, rather, that, hey, this is all breathed out by God. It is all for our good. It is profitable for teaching. It's profitable, profitable for correcting people who are off track, for training people in righteousness. And God's intention is that we would take Scripture and that we would use it for our benefit to mature into the men and women he would have us be. Yeah. Um, so what is this text teaching me? Um, how is this text reproving or correcting me? What is this text training me to do? Um, those are all things we need to be thinking about as we walk through the New Testament and the Old Testament again. So, yeah. yeah. So those are just some interpretive lenses for the New Testament um, as well, um, along with some for the Old Testament. Uh, Taylor, your your thoughts and responses. My biggest, and we're just going to harp on this forever, and I'm, I'm ready to do it. My biggest takeaway here is, one, look at all these lenses, apply them as you read, but but really do this in larger chunks of Scripture. These mm. these are really these are really hard to apply in little short in little short uh, passages, but this gets easier the more you read Scripture. And this goes back around to one of the things we started with. It's part of the context uh, conversation, but when you when you mention that Scripture interprets Scripture. Once you read through it, those parts are enlightened by your knowledge of the whole. Mm. Your knowledge of the whole will make more sense as you read the parts again. And so that's my big takeaway from all this. Apply these lenses as we work through the whole of Scripture. And if that means the whole of the Gospels for now or one Gospel, I mean, we're in John. If that mm. means using this as we just work through John and do it again and again and again over this year, yeah. that's great. Yeah. But I think ideally we're doing this throughout all of Scripture, all of the time. Yeah. And there's, you read this once, five times, or five hundred times. This being the Bible, mm. you're coming away with something new, not necessarily something different. It's not like our views are just completely changing every time we go through this. But you are being shown something new. There are riches in Scripture that take a lifetime plus some to mm. explore. Yeah, yeah, and they're endless. Yeah, they're endless. So, all right, we're going to stop there for today. Um, that's uh, the third, or this is the third of three episodes on biblical interpretation. We talked about the meta narrative of Scripture. We talked about some lenses for interpreting the Old Testament, some lenses for interpreting the New Testament. Um, and so that's the second piece in this um, study method that we've been talking about this whole time. We're going to observe what's on the page. We're going to interpret what's on the page. And next episode, we're going to begin applying to our lives what's on the page. And we can't adequately interpret if we haven't first adequately observed. And we certainly can't apply unless we've observed and inter interpreted correctly. So uh, we'll see you guys next time. And uh, we're going to have a big party and uh, talk about biblical application in awesome. your own life. Awesome. Right. We'll see you guys then.